And let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that where your word goes out, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes what it was intended to do. Lord, we saw a good example of that this morning. And those that came to know you, those that opened their hearts and received your word, and Lord, their lives are changed tonight. And I pray that you'll encourage those hearts, that you'll help them grow, help them walk closer to you, Lord. And I just pray you'll continue to do great things in all our lives, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and ask that you bless tonight's Bible study. In his name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21 reads, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring it to pass his unusual act. In the valley of Gibeon, God displayed his awesome work, his unusual act. We studied it last week in Joshua chapter 10. It's not every day that the sun and moon stand still in their march across the sky. God may have worked this miracle by his own hand. He may have produced this phenomenon just by reaching down and manipulating the orbits and so forth. Or he might have employed celestial mechanics, possibly a planetary flyby, maybe a comet sweeping through the Earth's atmosphere. Either way, it was an awesome work. It was an unusual act. Imagine God grabbing an aimless comet out in deep space then directing its trajectory to reach the earth at the exact moment to coincide with Joshua's prayer. That would be an awesome work, an unusual act. And yet tonight's chapters detail a more normal work, a more common act. I've discovered that the Christian life is really a combination of both. God works in miraculous, stupendous ways, Unusual acts, but he also calls on us to perform certain basic duties. The Christian life is a combination of God's unusual acts and our common acts. Here, General Joshua leaves behind his thrilling battles, his daring maneuvers, his colossal triumphs, and he embroils himself in a more mundane work. He picks up his transit and his range rod, And he goes out to do the routine job of a surveyor. Joshua's job in chapters 13 through 24 is to divide the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. Reminds me of the farmer who was tired of paying exorbitant property taxes. The taxes were literally driving him out of business, and so he decided to sell his farm. One day he was approached by a man who wanted the farmer to show him the boundaries of his property. The farmer, though, asked first, are you a buyer or a tax assessor? Property lines and boundary markers and a good survey are important items. Though all the earth belongs to God, the allotment was of the land was a very important issue to the Hebrews. Two passages in Deuteronomy really prove the point. In chapter 19, verse 14, we're told, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, 
and your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. All that Joshua does in these chapters, the landmarks that are established, the boundaries that are plotted out, are to stand. They're not to be tinkered with or removed. This was important work. Deuteronomy 27 verse 17 tells us, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Several years ago, I read about a family of six that had been found shot to death in their home. It turns out they were murdered by their next door neighbor over a boundary dispute. The neighbor had come over and had gunned down the whole family because he said that the dead had repositioned the property pen. The last half of Joshua was intended to avoid these types of disputes. To set out the boundaries, to plot out the markers. I guess you could say we're going to cover a lot of ground in tonight's study. In chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord says to Joshua, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Now, the bulk of the land had been conquered, but there were still little pockets of resistance here and there. The Philistines had held on to the southeast, southwest, I'm sorry, they're along the Mediterranean coast. The Canaanites lived in the south, bordering on the wilderness. The Gibelites occupied an area just south of Mount Hermon, north of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sidonians lived in what is today southern Lebanon, up along the coast near Tyre and Sidon. As the Lord told Joshua, there remains very much land yet to be possessed. But the best way to motivate Israel to drive out these remaining Canaanites is to give certain tribes an incentive to pick up their arms and to go out into battle. And this is why God divvies up the land. That which the Hebrews possessed and the few parcels still occupied by the Canaanites. If a particular tribe knew the borders of their possession, then they would want to go out and fight and occupy all that belonged to them. God says in verse 6, Divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. The land was Israel's inheritance. God promised it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his descendants. You remember the three promises that God made to Abraham. The land, the nation, the blessing. What did we call them? Sod, seed, salvation. The very first one, though, was a chunk of land. This was Israel's inheritance. It was God's gift. This is one reason why the land of Israel is so important to Jewish people today. They understand it's God's special gift to them. It's their inheritance. It's a sad tale of Hebrew history that they had never fully possessed all the land that God had promised them. Complete occupation of the land is still future. In fact, there's a prophecy in Obadiah chapter uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 that says, The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. I like that. They shall possess their possessions. I think that's a good motto for the Christian life as well. Do we fully possess our possessions? We've been given in Christ Jesus all that pertains to life and godliness. Yet are we possessing our possessions? 
If we are, why does our life lack power over temptation? Why do we lack boldness for being a witness? Why do we lack joy in our disposition? Most of us, I think, are living far below our privileges. Like Israel of old, we need to rise up in faith and possess our possessions, lay hold of every single blessing that God has for us in Christ Jesus. The west bank of the Jordan River was to be allocated to nine and a half of Israel's 12 tribes. You remember in Numbers chapter 32 that Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh asked Moses if they could settle on the east bank of the Jordan River. You remember when they suggested this at first, Moses balked. He thought that they were trying to shirk their responsibilities to fight with their brothers and conquer the Canaanites. But they assured Moses that they were willing to do battle, that they would fight alongside the other tribes until the enemy was defeated. Then they would return to the pasture land on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, in the last half of chapter 13, now that the enemy has been conquered, the land is theirs, Joshua reminds them of their boundaries. And he lays it out for them, first the tribe of Reuben, then the tribe of Gad, then the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you read about that in chapter 13. We learn later that this decision to settle outside the promised land ended up being fatal to these two and a half tribes. According to First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, we're told that these tribes fell into idolatry. They were first to be taken captive by the Assyrians years later. Apparently, the Jordan was a needed wall to protect the tribes of Israel, both militarily and spiritually. And yet, these two and a half tribes decided to neglect that boundary. I think it points out a lesson to us that when we settle for second best, when we refuse to go on with God into all that He has for us, we set ourselves up for failure, for danger. We make ourselves more vulnerable to temptation. I've seen it happen over and over. A person gets right to the brink of blessing. Then because it seems hard to go that extra step of obedience, or because it would require more faith to really do all that God has said, we pull up short. If that's you, don't do it. Press on. Enter into all God's goodness. Possess All your possessions. In chapter 14, the allocation of the land west of the Jordan takes place. It was done through the casting of lots. You might call it a righteous raffle. The tribe of Judah is first to receive their allotment. And guess who steps out of the crowd to take possession of the first parcel? Joshua's old buddy, Caleb. You remember Caleb. Of the two to three million Hebrews who crossed over the Jordan, only Joshua and Caleb were members of the generation that had left Egypt. They were the only ones that were allowed to enter the promised land. They were among the ten men that Moses had sent into the land to spy it out and to bring back a report. And you remember Joshua and Caleb were the only two to bring back a positive report. 
Both of these men were men of faith, men willing to take possession of the promises of God. And three times in chapter 14, we're told, Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Wouldn't you love for that to be said of you? That you wholly followed the Lord. There was no compromise with Caleb, no partial obedience, no getting to the brink of blessing and pulling up short, no half-hearted devotion. He wanted to go all out in his relationship with God. Caleb has waited now 45 years to receive his inheritance. That's why he's first in line. He's ready. He's eager. And guess what? He asks for his possession. 45 years earlier, he told his brothers that God would give them victory over the giants in the land. Now he still wants to fight the giants. And so he asks Joshua for Hebron, home of the Anakim or the giants. He's 85 years old. He's been on Social Security for 20 years. And look what he says in verses 11 and 12. As yet, I am as strong this day as the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Most people 85 years old are asking to be housed in an assisted living home. Not Caleb. He wants Hebron. He wants that mountain where the giants live. He told them back before, 40 years earlier, he told them God would whip the giants. And he wants to prove it now. He wants to go scrapping with a few giants. In chapter 15, verse 14, he drives out the three sons of Anak. Three giants. He possesses the land the mountain that the Lord gives him. Apparently, Caleb was a man who loved to challenge. It's been said of Caleb, a faith that never wavered produced a strength that never weakened. Remember that. A faith that never wavers produces a strength that never weakens. Caleb was a feisty old cuss to the very end of his life. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to see Caleb and John Wayne just duking it out for the fun of it. Just to stay in shape. Oh, Caleb will probably be wandering around the streets of heaven looking for giants. Chapter 15 gives us the boundaries of the land of Judah. It was a southern tribe with borders to the east on the Dead Sea, to the west on the Mediterranean. It also took in Jerusalem, which was held by the Jebusites to the time of David. There's a map on the front of your study guide that will give you the approximate boundaries of all of the 12 tribes and where they settled. In chapter 15, we learn that Othniel, Israel's first judge, was also Caleb's son-in-law. Othniel won marriage to Caleb's daughter, Oxa by taking land from the Canaanites. It's interesting to me that Caleb not only showed faith and courage, but he rewarded it in others as well. Anyone who defeated the Canaanites would get his daughter 
And so he gave her to Othniel in marriage because of his courage and because of his faith. Caleb was a giant killer. But it's interesting to me, his daughter had him wrapped around her little finger. For in verse 19, he gives her a field, and then she asks for a spring. And so he gives her two, the upper spring and the lower spring. Whatever my baby wants, she gets. Caleb had a common weakness. He couldn't say no to his little girl. This is a problem I know nothing about. He probably bought half gallons of Brewster's ice cream for her too, but we're not really told that in the text. I've heard that's what doting dads often do for their little girls. But Caleb loved his little girl. Chapter 16 lays out the boundaries for the tribe of Ephraim. Chapter 17 marks out the territory of the remaining half-tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim possessed two cities, Shiloh, two famous cities, Shiloh and Bethel. The ark rested in the tabernacle at Shiloh for nearly 350 years. Manasseh was given Samaria and the lower Galilee region including the Valley of Jezreel and the city of Megiddo. But it was said of both tribes that they didn't drive out the Canaanites. Rather than rise up and make an all-out effort to rid themselves of their enemies, they were content to coexist. They tolerated a partial victory. They lacked courage to go all the way with God. And it's interesting, in chapter 17... Ephraim and Manasseh both complain about their meager allocation. Oh, we deserve a larger territory. More land, more commiserate with our own honorable status. We are great tribes. We are honorable tribes. And in verse 15, Joshua gets a little sarcastic. He says, if you are a great people... Then go up to the forest country and clear a place for you there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. In other words, if you want more land, then why don't you take some land away from the Perizzites and the giants? (laughs) But why would God give them more land when they're not possessing all of the land that he's already given them? Hey, we can be just like Ephraim and Manasseh. We want more opportunities to serve the Lord when we're not taking advantage of the opportunities that we've been given. We think we are great people. Oh, I've got talent. I'm not getting the opportunity that my talent deserves. I should be leading worship on Sunday morning instead of that Young Irish guy. I should be teaching on Sunday morning rather than that Sandy Adams. But hey, we've asked you to teach Sunday school and you won't do it. We need someone who will go back and sing songs and lead the kids in worship. 
Why haven't you stepped forward? If you really wanted to serve the Lord, you could come up on Saturday mornings and help clean the church. Or you could serve as an usher. You could serve as a greeter. There are a lot of needs down at the homeless shelter. You could go down on Thursdays and help minister to them. Don't ask for more territory until you fully possess the land that you've been given. When there are no more giants in your parcel, then we'll talk about expanding your territory. Faithfulness to God begins right where you're at. That's where you start. And then once you drive out the giants, we'll give you more land. In Joshua chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, we're told, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them, but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Joshua tells each of these seven remaining tribes to select three men from each tribe. These 21 representatives are to walk throughout the land, survey it into seven parcels, then they're to bring the plats back to Joshua, and he'll make the assignments of the territories. Here's how it all turns out. Benjamin receives the track of land between Ephraim and Judah. Simeon gets a portion of Judah. He is settled down in the southern part of land that originally belonged to Judah. Zebulun receives the heart of Galilee. Nazareth was in the territory of Zebulun. Issachar was in the Galilee on the west bank of the Jordan. Asher settled on the Mediterranean coast up north toward the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Naphtali was north of the Sea of Galilee near Mount Hermon. Today uh, it's in southern, it would be called southern Lebanon. Dan was given a strip of land between Ephraim and Judah westward on the Mediterranean coast. You remember Samson was a Danite. Later we'll learn that a few of the Danites migrated north and they took the city of Lesham and they ended up basically with two parcels. Joshua receives his inheritance last and he settles in the mountains of Ephraim. In chapter 20, verses 2 through 6, the Lord tells Joshua, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. And they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days, then the slayer may return and come to his own city. Now, if you've watched any Madlock reruns lately, you know the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter. Murder in the first degree is a premeditated act. Manslaughter is the unintentional or the accidental taking of another human life. In ancient times, if you were guilty even of manslaughter, the family of the victim 
had the right to track you down and to avenge their brother's blood. They would chase you. You were never safe. You were always looking over your shoulder. Reminds me of the two guys that were out walking in the woods when suddenly a hungry bear jumped out into the path. One of the guys threw down his backpack. He reached in, he pulled out his Nike sneakers and he started lacing them on his feet. His buddy laughed. He said, hey, tennis shoes aren't going to make you faster than that bear. The old boy looked at his friend and he said, no, I don't have to be faster than the bear. All I've got to do is outrun you. Well, often it literally boiled down to a race between the avenger and the slayer. The law of Moses, though, provided protection for the person guilty of an accidental murder. In Numbers chapter 35, the Lord told Moses that when Israel enters the land, they're to set up certain cities as safe havens or cities of refuge for the manslayer. There were a total of six scattered strategically throughout Israel to provide easy access. Three were on the west side of the Jordan River. Three were on the east side of the Jordan River. When a manslayer arrived at a city of refuge, his case was first reviewed by the city elders. If they believed that the crime was unintentional, they would take him in. And as long as he stayed in the city, he was safe. Of course, if he went outside the city limits, he was fair game for the avenger. His dilemma continued until the death of the high priest. And whether the priest lived to be 35 or 95, the slayer could return home only after the high priest had died. Now, all this seems like an archaic ritual, an ancient rule with very little relevance to you and me, until we study this as a provision of the type of Christ until we look at the cities of refuge in light of Jesus. When you have a hard time trying to decipher a passage of Scripture, always look for Jesus in that passage. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, Jesus is on every page of this book. And here, these cities of refuge is a perfect type of Jesus Christ. You see, in a sense, all sin is murder. The wages of sin is what? It's death. When you sin, you take your own life. When you sin, you initiate, in essence, a slow suicide. We need a place to run when we sin. We need a safe haven. We need a place of refuge where we can avoid the consequences of our sin And Jesus is that place of refuge. As long as we are in Christ, we are forgiven. We're safe from judgment. When we sin, we need to run to Jesus as fast as we can. According to the Jewish tradition, the roads leading to the cities of refuge were kept cleared and passable. Bridges were were to remain open. Signs with large letters read, Miklach, or Refuge. These signs marked the way to the cities. Everything was done to make it as easy as possible for the guilty person to find his or her way to a place of safety and refuge. Guys, this is our job. 
God wants us to make it as easy as possible for people to come to Jesus Christ. Our job is to mark the way. It's to keep the road clear of misconceptions. It's to build bridges of understanding. It's to open people's eyes to the truth. Our lives should be road signs pointing people to our city of refuge, Jesus Christ. There are at least nine other parallels between Christ and these cities of refuge. Let me give you a few. First of all, the gates were never locked. And the way to Jesus is never barred. As long as you were inside the city, you were safe. If you left it, you were on your own. And the same is true with Jesus. We need to continue or to abide in Christ. You had to pick up and leave and leave all your possessions behind to come to the city of refuge. Likewise, to follow Jesus, you have to leave behind anything that might rival your devotion to him. Refuge was available, but you had to come. The same is true with Jesus Christ. The offer is present, always. But you have to make the effort. You have to get up and come and trust. Once inside the city, there were plenty of provisions. And likewise, all that a human heart might ever need is found in Christ Jesus. The cities of refuge were established in advance. And Jesus was slain. When? Before the foundation of the world, way beforehand. According to Numbers 35, verse 15, strangers and Gentiles, as well as Jews, were welcome to come to the cities of refuge, as they are also in Christ. And the death of the high priest granted total freedom. And it's because of the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ, that we receive a permanent pardon. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Of the work of Jesus Christ. One other point. Notice the names of the cities of refuge. All six cities, their names speak of the work of Jesus Christ. Kadesh means holiness. Shechem means shoulder. And Jesus shoulders our burdens. Hebron means fellowship. And that's what Jesus offers us. Fellowship with God. Bezir means fortified place. Jesus is a place of protection. Ramoth means exaltation. Golan means joy. And above all, we find joy in Christ Jesus. All the above is found in our Lord Jesus Christ, in a relationship with Him. Chapter 21 lists 48 cities that were given to accommodate the priests and the Levites. They were called Levitical cities. And they were scattered throughout the 12 tribes. Now, back in Joshua 13, verse 33, we are told, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance, for the Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. When Israel sinned at Mount Sinai in worshiping the golden calf, the tribe of Levi was quick to repent and side with the Lord. And as a result, God blessed them with a special privilege. Understand, the other tribes were blessed with a parcel, but Levi inherited a privilege. They were allowed to help the priests in the worship of the tabernacle. The tribe of Levi, in essence, was the tribe that was allowed to stay close to God at all times. 
them and their descendants. And that's why it was really a good thing to have Levi jeans. The beauty of holiness, the magnificence of God's glory, offered far more stimulating views than the highest mountain, than the greenest valley. They didn't have a parcel, but they had a privilege. God hasn't given us parcels, although one day we'll inherit the earth. But right now He's given us a privilege. We can enter into His presence. We can know His glory. We can sense His beauty spiritually. In the depths of our heart, we can commune and know God and experience the the glory and the beauty of God. Boy, what a privilege. The Levites had the better deal, I would think. We have the better deal, I would think. And yet they still needed a place to live, and so God established 48 cities throughout the land of Egypt excuse me, Israel, as places where they could reside. Joshua sums up the allocation of the land in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. And catch this, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Isn't that beautiful? God is faithful. What God promises, He will perform. His words never fail. It's been said, God never makes a promise too good to be true. (laughs) When God promises it, you know that the good will come to pass. God is faithful to His Word. Now in chapter 22, the two and a half tribes who chose to settle east of the Jordan, they return home. But a misunderstanding follows that almost erupts into an east-west civil war. For when the two and a half tribes cross the Jordan River, they build an altar there on its banks. Now, on the surface, this was a blatant violation of the Word of God. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses told Israel that they were to worship God in the designated place. And sacrifices were only to be offered in the centralized altar. The altar set up in the tabernacle there at Shiloh. So what are these tribes doing? Erecting an altar on the banks of the Jordan River. Well, in chapter 22, verse 12, we're told the reaction of the nine and a half tribes. The whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. I'm talking the situation is getting tense. Tempers are flaring. People are boiling over with anger. It's a good thing that cooler heads prevailed. Before brothers start slaughtering brothers, someone suggests that the two sides have a conversation. Why is it we always want to fight before we talk? 
But Phineas, the priest, he goes down to the Jordan to find out what's really going on with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It doesn't take long to clear up the matter. It's amazing what a little conversation will have in clearing up uh, misunderstandings. The two and a half tribes assure Phineas that they have no intention of offering sacrifices on this altar. In fact, the reason they've erected it is because they fear that one day, because they're living east of the Jordan, they'll be prohibited from coming back and making their sacrifices there in Shiloh. They're simply trying to build an altar of witness that will testify that they too are part of the nation. In fact, in verse 28, they call it a witness between you and us. We're just erecting an altar here signifying that we too belong to Israel so that we can come back and worship there at Shiloh like we've been told in God's law. Of course, Phineas accepts their explanation and a disaster is averted. But it's interesting to me how it all got started. Look back in verse 11. We're told, now the children of Israel heard someone say, Sound familiar? They got all heated up over hearsay. When will we learn? The nation almost goes to blows. A bloody war almost erupts over a stinking rumor. Hearsay. They heard someone say, This is how civil war starts among friends. This is how conflicts arise within church. Someone hears someone else say. They take hearsay to heart without checking it out. We blow up over hearsay, over rumors, over misunderstandings. How many church splits have been the result of misunderstandings that could have been avoided if both sides had simply sat down and talked it out and clarified their intentions and had a conversation. (laughs) How simple. And yet how often we don't do that simple thing. It's been said, handle a rumor like a check. Never endorse it until you know it's genuine. Remember that. Now, on April the 19th, 1951, General Douglas MacArthur delivered a farewell speech before the United States Congress. And in his speech, MacArthur said, I still remember the refrain of an old but popular barracks ballad which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And like the old soldier in that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the sight to see that duty. General Joshua could have said the same thing. He is now 110 years old. He's an old soldier who has done his duty before God and now it's time for him to fade away. But first, Joshua calls the nation together to make a final speech. And in chapter 23, he says his farewells. The aging general, just as MacArthur did, calls the nation together, the leaders and the people, to speak to them one final time. Joshua begins 
by reminding of all God had done for them. He reminds Israel that God had driven out the nations before them, that God had given them the land as an inheritance. Joshua says in verse 3, The Lord your God is He who has fought for you. Remember, Joshua was the general, but he takes none of the credit. He knows the Lord was responsible for all the victories. In verses 6 through 10, Joshua begins his instructions and his warnings. He says, Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. They had been successful. And yet their success could change overnight. For Joshua is concerned about the Canaanites who have been allowed to remain in the land. You see, he knows that it's a lot easier for bad people to rub off on good people than it is for good people to impact and affect bad people. You see, sin is a communicable disease. Righteousness, on the other hand, is not. And that's why parents remember that when your kids start to select their friends. You need to guide them. You need to help them make right choices when it comes to their friends, the people they want to hang out with. Joshua can foresee the day when toleration will become socialization. And socialization will become assimilation. It starts out just tolerating them. Then they begin to interact. And then before long, they begin to adopt customs and ideas and even worship. The Hebrews would begin to intermarry these pagans and be drawn into their idolatry. Joshua sees it ahead of time. And he warns Israel that these little pockets of paganism, of unbelief, that they've allowed to remain in their midst will become, as he puts it, snares and traps to you, scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Guys, we too have to be on guard against the danger of assimilation. We are in the world, but we are not of it. Too much exposure to godless philosophies and secular values can draw us into the web of this world. We can forget the God who fights for us and end up serving at the altar of materialism or hedonism or humanism. You see, we are like Noah's ark. You know, God fashioned the ark to float in the water. The ark in the water was no problem. But water in the ark was a definite problem. If the ark started taking on water, it would have been a disaster. 
And the same is true with the Christian. We are designed by God to overcome the world, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. The Christian in the world is no problem. But when the world starts getting into the Christian, that can bring disaster. And when you start adopting secular ideas, when you start entertaining sensual thoughts, when you allow your mind to go places it shouldn't go, your heart to venture places it shouldn't go, then you set yourself up for disaster. God wants us to be separate people. He wants us to be holy and set apart. He wants us to reserve our minds and our thoughts and our affections for godly influences, for healthy preoccupations. I try to tell my kids, once you put that thought or that picture or that idea into your mind, you can never get it out. And that's why you need to be careful what you expose yourself to. You don't need to see the pornography to know that it's out there. You don't need to watch certain things to know that it's going on, to be informed. I hear, well, I need to be informed. No, you don't. You know what's out there. I do too. We need to be pure. We need to be set apart and holy. We need to be careful what goes into our minds. Because once that thought goes in, we can never get it out. Temptation is like flypaper. Once that little fly lands on it, it's hard to leave it. Beware of the snare and the traps, Joshua tells us. After his speech, Joshua calls Israel together at Shechem, a few miles north of his home up in the mountains of Ephraim. And here he issues a final challenge. He begins with a recounting of Israel's history. He starts with their founder, Abraham, chapter 24. Interestingly, in verse 2, he tells us that Abraham was an idolater before God called him out of the land of of the Chaldees. We learn that really just from Joshua and from his account here. He continues with the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, their journey to Egypt, the plagues, the Red Sea, the wilderness, in six verses... Verses 2 through 7, Joshua covers about 800 years of Hebrew history. How's that for a real Bible scan? In verse 8, he reminds them of Balaam and their victories east of the Jordan. Joshua then recounts the battle of Jericho, and he sums up their victories over the Amorites. In verse 12, he says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Now the Hebrew word translated hornet means stinging wasps. And some Bible scholars interpret this as a poetic way of describing the panic that prevailed among the Amorites. They were just all buzzing around, all confused, and that's what led to the Hebrew victory. But why... Wouldn't it mean literal hornets? God may have used a plague of stinging wasps, you know, to come and attack the enemy. 
that would have made them easy pickings for the Hebrews. Imagine trying to fight after you had been stung by a swarm of hornets. Any Georgia bulldog can tell you it's no fun to get stung by a yellow jacket. We noted last week the parallels between Joshua and Revelation, and here's another. You remember the fifth trumpet, the judgment in Revelation 5, predicts five months of stinging locusts. And I believe a swarm of hornets here helped Joshua in his conquest. Verse 13 sums up, sums up God's blessing on Israel. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. This can also be said of the blessings that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Jesus purchased them. He paid for them on the cross. He did the work. And the joy that you know tonight, the peace you have in your heart, the hope you have for the future, the satisfaction that you've experienced, the victory over sin in which you're walking. You enjoy those blessings today because of what God has done. You're living in cities that you didn't build. You're eating from trees that you didn't plant. You didn't do the work. God has done the work. God is the one who supplied the elbow grease. All you've done is trusted and received. Isn't that beautiful? That's grace. That's getting what we don't deserve. That's God's grace. In verse 15, Joshua issues his famous challenge. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why don't we say it together? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I've seen that last line on bookmarks, on cross stitches, in wedding albums. I've seen that last line just about everywhere. But let me ask you tonight, is that truly written in your heart? Have you made that commitment? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As I said this morning, sometimes after I say no to my kids, they'll come up and they'll say, ah, dad, but everybody else is doing it. And my reply is simple. Who cares what everybody else is doing? Remember, it was the majority who said, crucify him. Crucify him. Would you have wanted to be a part of the majority that day? Anytime you go to a river, notice that it's the dead fish that are going with the flow. If you'll pay close attention, none of the live fish are going with the flow. They're all swimming against the current, aren't they? The only thing that goes with the flow are the dead fish. And so if you want to go with the flow, then you'd be a dead fish. But I don't want to be a dead fish. I want to be a live fish. 
I want to walk with God. I want to know his life and his love. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean that you should do it. Joshua was determined. Joshua had the right attitude. He didn't care what else was happening, what other people were doing. He had made up his mind. He had settled the issue. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I hope you all settle the issue tonight. That you leave out of here with no ambiguity, with no hesitancy, with no cloudy ideas about how you're going to live your life, but you're determined. As for me and my house, we're committed. We're going to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. After rehearsing God's blessings themselves, in verses 16 through 18, the children of Israel answer Joshua's challenge at the end of verse 18. They tell him, We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Their conviction grows even stronger in verse 24. The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. And Joshua goes on and makes a covenant between God and Israel there at Shechem. He writes the words of Israel's commitment alongside the words of God. And then he establishes a memorial to this covenant. In verse 26, Joshua takes a large stone and he places it under an oak tree. And this stone will serve as a witness to Israel's commitment that day. In verse 29, Joshua dies, and his marvelous legacy is summed up in verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. As long as Joshua was at the helm, Israel never strayed off course. That's quite a commendation for a leader. Joshua, even his influence went even further because we're told that even his elders stayed true to the word of God. In other words, Joshua's faith in God, he was able to transfer into the hearts of the men closest to him. And so Joshua, in essence, affected two generations. His own and the generation that followed. I want to have a two-generation impact. I want to transfer my faith to you, but I also want to do it to the generation to come. Joshua lived to the grand old age of 110 and was buried at his home, at home in the promised land, in the land that it had taken him 40 years to enter. He was buried in the mountains of Ephraim, in the inheritance that he had received from God. Where else would General Joshua have wanted his body to rest than in the land that God had promised to the children of Israel? And there we have the book of Joshua. Now, over the next three weeks, it's going to, we're going to have a little break. And so it's going to give you an opportunity to get caught up. Get your study guides out. If you missed a week, go back, get the tape. Kind of get up to speed. Because when we come back, we're going to begin to study one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Judges.
And man, the swords will be flashing. The javelins will be flying. The fighting will be intense. Josh, Judges is so much fun. Judges is more fun than watching a John Wayne movie. You'll get more out of Joshua than you will, I mean, Judges, than you will out of the sons of Katie Elder. Great book, great book.